Shivasadi Gora Bhakta Vindaki Shi Shi Radha Krishna Go Gopinath Shamakunda Radha Kandidi Govardhana Ki Jai Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai Jiradhamma Ki Jai Radhi Mayapur Dhamma Ki Jai Jagannath Puri Dhamma Ki Jai Ganga Mai Juna Devi Ki Jai Jai Devi Ki Jai Jai Maharani Ki Jai Samaveta Bhakta Vindaki So this is June 6, 2010, here at Honolulu. I thought we'd look tonight at suffering, tests, difficulties, problems. I had a relative many years ago who said, why should I bother being religious? Religious people suffer as much as anybody else. Maybe more. Maybe more. <laughs> I think it's a general misconception or a general expectation that if I become religious, that my life will be easier on a material platform, that I'll have a happy material life. And of course, we do find throughout the scriptures descriptions of the fact that if there's a, a spiritually awakened society, that there's also material prosperity. Srila Prabhupada often talks about having an ideal society where people are living a simple, natural life in harmony with the earth and how that will reduce crime and pollution and disease and interpersonal problems. And he even talks about how in former ages of the earth, when people lived like that, that the distresses that we experience at the present time were very, very greatly reduced. So there's certainly some basis for saying that if the world in general is a, is a more spiritually inclined place, that, that will also affect our degree of material happiness and material prosperity. We do find, though, that people who take up a spiritual path do not necessarily have a life free of what we would call difficulty or pain or suffering. And this is not only true for the person who's trying to become enlightened, but we see that this is also true for people who are already enlightened. We have on our altar there on the right, there's a picture of the Lord as a Singadev, who saved his devotee Prahlad, and Prahlad was very severely tortured and attempted to be killed by his own father, simply because he was a religious person. And on the external platform at least, what he suffered was really horrendous, much more so than an ordinary person would suffer. Or we have the stories of the Mahabharata, where the Pandavas went through so many difficulties in their life. Again, they had family members who were trying to kill them for political purposes. They went through a war, they lost all of their children, and so forth. So we see that there's suffering in the lives of not only aspiring spiritualists, but also perfected spiritualists. And then a person might say, just like my one relative did, well, why bother to worship God? It doesn't do you any good. There's, there's no point. You don't end off any better than anybody else. So I thought we'd take a look at this question because I believe that most of us in our lives have something that we would consider difficulty or an obstacle or some kind of suffering. Anybody here have no suffering? So there's a very nice discussion in the Srimad Bhagavatam on this particular point. And it's prefaced with the question, that why, when the Lord is called the husband of the goddess of fortune, it's called Madhava, said that, that God's consort is the goddess of fortune, of good fortune, then why do his devotees sometimes have misfortune? If your mother is the goddess of fortune, how can you have any misfortune? How is that possible? Fortune, of course, specifically means wealth, 
is called Lakshmi, which is another word for money, specifically wealth, but all good fortune. Anything that we consider opulence in this world, beauty, education, strength, fame, wealth. It seems that the devotees would be overflowing in all of those opulences. So the question was answered by Sukadev Goswami, uh, referencing other conversations with saintly persons. And he gave many reasons why there's difficulties for the spiritual aspirant and the spiritually perfected. And he says that sometimes when a person wants spiritual life but still is attached to the material world, that the Lord will intentionally, purposely, try to sever that attachment. And I think of it as something like if you went... If you wanted to excel in some sport, you wanted to become a great tennis player, or swimmer, or something like that, and you went to a coach, and you said, okay, I really want to become a great tennis player. Please help me. And your coach saw that, although you were coming to practice, and you were putting in your time, and you were studying, that you also were maintaining some habits that were detrimental to your becoming an excellent athlete. Well, the coach might say to you, I suggest that you change some things in your lifestyle. And if you're talking about a parent, the parent might do those things intentionally. I was just staying with my son and his children, and some of the children were saying, why do you sometimes force us? And we said, because you often don't know what's best for you. The child is forced to go to school. I mean, you know, some parents will say, do you want to go to school today? You can stay home if you like. But generally, the parents don't do that. If the child uh, says, I want to go to college, the parents say, well, okay, then. You've got to do your schoolwork before you can go out and play. Or if you want to become an expert, as I say, an expert athlete, well, then you can't eat junk food. And the parents might even not allow junk food in the house. And they might take it away from the children. So in the same way, it's explained that when we go to the Lord and we say, I really want to become spiritually perfect. I really want to become enlightened. I want to become full of love of God. I want to become a spiritually awakened being. And at the same time, we're holding on to things that are interfering with that, then he may take those things away. Or it's also explained that he may take them away or he may let us have them, but gradually induce in ourselves a mood of renunciation. And how does he induce in ourselves a mood of renunciation? He may allow us to see that those things we're attached to are not really enjoyable. So he may either not, not allow us to have them, or he may allow us to have them, but in such a way that we see their true nature. This world is called a world of maya, or illusion, that which is not. And to become enlightened means to see that which is. So sometimes Krishna may remove this covering of maya so that we see the world for what it is. And for someone who's attached to illusion, that is not a very pleasant experience. Right? If you're attached to illusion, if you want to think that things are different than they are, it's just like sometimes in a marriage, one of the partners finds out that the other person has been cheating on them for many, many years but they thought the person was in love with them. The illusion is removed. And that's, it's painful. They were attached to the illusion that this person is in love with me and they find out that they're not. So we're attached to the illusion that this world is the source of our happiness, this world is our shelter. And Krishna may show us, no, it's, it's really not. He'll show us the reality. So at that time, the aspiring spiritualist will first try to get the illusion back again. They'll try to get the, the wealth back or the whatever was interfering with their spiritual life. I mean, again, if you have a child who says, yes, I want to be a tennis player, but they're eating candy, and you take the candy out of their hand, at first they're going to fight to get it back. Give me that back, Mommy. Don't take my candy. So at first, when, when Krishna takes away the things that are keeping us from them, at first we usually try to get them back. 
And then after a while, we say, oh, actually these things were not good for me. So the first reason that there's difficulty is that Krishna is helping us to get rid of things that are interfering with our actual desire. But we may not be able to see that at the time. And the, uh, the commentaries on these verses say this example of the child who's going to school. So again, I was just with my grandchildren who were being homeschooled, and the eight-year-old was saying, why do I have to learn this? I don't want to learn this. What good will it do? And you explain to her, well, this is why you're learning it. It will help you in this way. What good will it do? She's not, she's not mature enough to understand that it will be useful in her life to know how to read and write. You know, she thinks all I want to do is play with my dolls. So in one sense, our reasons for saying you have to do your schoolwork before you can play are inscrutable to her. She can't understand them. We can explain them. I used to have a policy as a teacher that I had to know the reason for every single bit of every single assignment I gave my students. But I was never able to have my students always understand every single reason. At least I had to know the reason. That was my policy. I couldn't give them any useless work. But sometimes you try to explain it. Okay, you'll use it for this, it will help you with this. No, it won't. So at a certain level of maturity, the reasons for the things that we're being asked to do don't make any sense to us. So in the same way, there are reasons for the difficulties that we go through in spiritual life, the tests, the obstacles. But if we're at a certain level of maturity, we can't see them. And I think that many of us have experienced that sometimes you see them later. Sometimes as time goes on, you say, oh, that's why that happened. It was really a blessing. It, it really helped me. It was something that was just, that gave me all facility for what I really wanted. So that's the first reason there's difficulty. It's for our benefit, so we can progress, but the exact reasons for it may not be able to be clear to us at the time. Uh, you can say that it's, it's the Lord's own reason. And it's very clearly stated that as soon as a person starts on the spiritual path, their difficulties and good things are no longer due to the law of karma. The law of karma is, I've done something and I'm getting a reaction. I'm, I'm under the laws of material nature. And as soon as you start on the spiritual path, as soon as one time you say, my dear Lord, I'm yours. Please accept me as your servant. I, I want to dedicate myself to spiritual life. At that moment, then you come under the personal protection of the Lord. Now, it's very interesting because part of our karma is also the body that we have. The technical Sanskrit term for that is parabdha karma. There's different levels of karmic reaction. One is the seed of a desire. Then one is the desire that started to manifest as action, but it hasn't yet gotten a reaction. And then there's the desire where the reaction's already come. You know, like, like you want to... You want to go someplace, you don't care whether it's an illegal parking spot, you actually park in the illegal spot and you get the ticket in the mail and you pay the ticket. So there's different levels. So this body is considered our paying of the ticket. It's our mature parabdha karma. And you could say, you know, that you plant the seed, you water the tree, the tree grows, it produces fruit, you pick the fruit, you eat the fruit. So this body is, we're eating the fruit. This particular body that we have is a gross manifestation of our specific desires and actions in a previous life. But it's explained in the scripture that as soon as you take up spiritual life, all of those levels of karma are destroyed, including the parabdha karma. So many people have asked, well, if that's true, then why do you still stay in your body? Why doesn't your body just sort of poof? And the answer is given that it takes some time for that devotion to mature. So our staying in our body, once we've started the spiritual path, is no longer the result of our 
karma. But it's what's being engineered by the Lord himself for our own spiritual advancement. And you might say, well, it doesn't feel much different. You know, it doesn't feel different. This person gets hit by a car. You know, the materialistic person gets hit by a car and the spiritually inclined person gets hit by a car. The materialistic person baby dies and the spiritualist baby dies. The materialist loses their money and the spiritualist loses their money. Right? There is a difference. There is a difference. If your enemy comes and takes something away from you or your mother takes something away from you, there's a difference. You know, if, if you have your candy and the local school bully takes it away to eat it. I had a bully like that when I was in third grade. He especially liked my blueberry muffins. My mother would usually pack blueberry muffins in my lunchbox. I think his name was Steve. <laughs> and he would, he would steal my blueberry muffins. And I would complain to the teacher and she wouldn't do anything. He was really expert, but he'd do it whenever she was like, you know, looking the other way. Or he'd do it when we had our cubby holes, you know, we kept our lunch bag. And go in to get our lunch bag and the teacher didn't come in the room with the cubby holes. And he would threaten me that if I didn't give him my blueberry muffins, he'd stick a pencil in him. And I thought that the pencils were lead, actually they're just graphite, but I thought they were lead and if you put his pencil in my muffin, I'd get lead poisoning if I ate the muffin. So. I remember my mother even coming with me to the principal and nothing was ever done about it. But if you're trying out for some, you want to be a tennis star, and your mother says to you, you know, you can't eat so many blueberry muffins because it's hurting your performance on the tennis court, and she's the one who takes your blueberry muffins away. That's a whole different thing. Either case, you're losing your blueberry muffins, but one is out of love. So the so-called suffering of the devotee is being given out of love. And again, we may not always be able to appreciate that. Of course, we can work at appreciating that. If we start looking at the difficulties in our lives, we all appreciate it with the good things. That's not hard. When there's things we want in our life and they come and we say, ah, oh, it's Krishna. I might have told this story here before. I went home, I was looking through many, many years ago, I was looking through my closet and I thought, I could use one more silk skirt. Would be nice. I think I'd like it to be beige with embroidered border. Maybe next time I go to India, I'll buy one. Ah, but it'll cost like $40 and waste the money and why bother? And I forgot about it. And three days later, one of the parents of one of the kids I was teaching hands me a sari. Oh, you might have something. I felt so sorry. I thought, Krishna, I'm sorry that I had some desire for something like that. But I saw immediately that's being given by Krishna. I saw Krishna's hand in it. But when there's some difficulty, do we see it? Everyone sees it in the good things. You know, we just recently had an article submitted for Back to God where someone was talking about how they really needed money for their scholarship for college. And you know, they started reading Bhagavad Gita and somebody just handed them exactly how much money they needed for their scholarship. Oh, that was Krishna. But it's also Krishna when somebody steals your money. That's also Krishna. One of my friends just told me that story that she and her friend were uh, traveling to an airport. They each had backpacks and both of their backpacks were stolen. So they went to the security in the airport and. And one of the backpacks was recovered. And the girl whose backpack was recovered said, oh, Krishna loves me. And the other woman who was telling me the story, she said, Krishna loves me too. <laughs> so it's practicing seeing like that. I mean, we would all, those of us who are parents, we'd all like our children to do that. We'd all like our children to say, thank you, mommy, for taking away my blueberry muffin. I know you're doing it because you love me. Or thank you for making me go to school and, and making me put down my toys. I know you're doing it because you love me and you care about me. I haven't yet met a kid who did that, you know, maybe when they're 30, in retrospect. But that's the kind of attitude that we can have about our difficulties, to see it as a gift from Krishna. And again, the purpose is to mature our devotion, 
Because I said our karma is gone the moment that we say, yes, I'm dedicating myself to the spiritual path, according to Lord, uh, the Lord as Ramachandra and Mr. Singhidev. Immediately we become the personal ward of the Lord. So we can understand it's not happening because of my karma, it's happening because of the reciprocation of the Lord. He's the one who's taking care of me. And to really see it like that, and how happy Krishna would be if we saw it like that. At the end, yes. And what's interesting is that if you see your suffering like that, it's no longer suffering. You can say, well, it doesn't still hurt if you have a broken arm. Not so much. If you see this as the grace and the mercy of Krishna to help me, this is to help me mature in devotion. Of course, sometimes it's very hard at the time. You know, if you've just been hit by the car or your house has just burned down, or it's hard right in the moment to say, well, this must be the grace of the Lord. But it's something that we can practice. Now we might say, as we mentioned in the beginning, that difficulties happen not only for practicing devotees. Okay, this difficulty is meant for my good to mature my devotion, to help me come to where I want to go to. But why does it happen to perfected devotees? And the commentators say that this is because Krishna wants to keep spiritual perfection a little secret. Because spiritual perfection is also about love. Now, just imagine, as I mentioned that relative of mine in the beginning of the class. Suppose she had looked at the world and said, all the people who are materialistic have miserable lives, and all the people who are spiritual, they have everything perfect in their life. They have perfect health, they have perfect money, they have a beautiful house, their family relationships are all wonderful. Then the problem is that people would take up spiritual life for the wrong reasons. People would take up spiritual life as a way to get material prosperity. And indeed, there are many teachers of religions who preach like this. Take up the religious path in order to gain material prosperity. And as I said earlier, it is a fact that if society in general were spiritually minded, we would have a prosperous earth. That's a fact. We wouldn't be having a lot of the difficulties What's our energy crisis? Our energy crisis is because we have a society that's dependent on the wrong sources of energy. But it's not that, again, that, that, okay, I'm going to worship God, I'm going to become spiritual so I can be happy in the world. In fact, that's the antithesis of spiritual life. Spiritual life means unconditional love. Now, it's like someone, they marry, someone who says they're married for money. That's not love. So that and spiritual life is love. So if that were done, if Krishna arranged that every person who took to the spiritual life or every perfected soul had a perfect material life, it would actually discourage people from getting to the heart of what spirituality is all about. Really, the materialistic mentality is I want to exploit the world for my own purposes. And then we'd be exploiting God. And in one sense, the world being God's energy is the same thing. And another reason, and this is a more confidential reason, that even the perfected devotees undergo suffering, is it's, it's really not suffering. It's an exchange of love. One of the most essential features of our Krishna conscious philosophy is that God is a person. Yeah, there's many spiritual philosophies on the planet who say that God is just a force or just an energy or that God is just the sum total of all of us or all life. And we're saying, yes, it's true. God is a force and God is an energy. But beyond that, he's a person. And a person means that he has feelings and personality and relationships. And one thing that people like to do is that all of us like to help somebody in trouble. Isn't that pleasing? Does everyone enjoy that? Someone's having some difficulty and you help them and you get to be a hero. It's enjoyable. So Krishna also enjoys that. And the devotees enjoy being saved by Krishna. It's very pleasurable to be saved by the hero. 
And we know that it's pleasurable even to hear about somebody being saved by a hero. That's what fuels so much of the movies and the books and the, the, the media today. How many of the stories in the modern media are about some kind of catastrophe or problem where the hero saves somebody in difficulty? It's very enjoyable. And if there's no difficulty, how is there any enjoyment? Can you imagine some action show where the world wasn't going to be blown up? You know, where it was just somebody's being saved from a hangnail or something like that? I am Superman! Come to clip your nails! It would be boring. They wouldn't make any money. So there's some exchange of love going on, but it's not real suffering. It's not real suffering. It's just an exchange of love. It may apparently look like that, that Prahlad is being tormented by his father. And he's not suffering. He's in transcendental ecstasy. I know the Pandavas are there in transcendental ecstasy. They're not feeling pain the way a conditioned soul feels pain. Therefore, in the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita, Krishna talks about what's actual freedom from all miseries caused by material contact is to be in a different state of consciousness. If you see this is all the play of the Lord, this is the reciprocation of the Lord, then there's no more suffering. So for the aspiring devotee, he sees that Krishna is personally engineering the good things in my life and the bad things in my life in order to bring me to unlimited bliss. Here at this temple every morning we recite uh, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's prayers of Shikshastakam. And one of them is Anandam Buddhivardhanam. It increases the ocean of Ananda. And uh, our Shiva Prabhupada's guru, Nirbhakti Siddhanta, he comments that although the soul is infinitesimal, the soul's capacity for bliss is unlimited. So we see that both the good things and the bad things in our life from a material perspective are Krishna's way of bringing us to unlimited bliss. And for the perfected soul, they see that the good things, so-called good things and bad things in your life are as an exchange of love. So both really are as an exchange of love, but one on an immature state and one on a mature state. And it's quite interesting that uh, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati also in his commentary on the Brahma Samhita, he says that if a person sees everything in life as the prasadam of the Lord, now, we use this word prasadam to talk mostly about food. Just like a little later on this evening, we're going to have a big feast of prasadam. In the Hare Krishna movement, we, we don't say, okay, we're going to have food. We say we're going to have prasadam. But this word prasadam literally means mercy, kindness. So to see everything in life as Krishna's kindness. This is the gift of Krishna. When he gives you money, when he gives you sweet family relationships, when he gives you good health, when he gives you the clothing that you wanted, when he gives you the house you wanted, this is his kindness. And when he takes it away, that's his kindness. You see everything like that. I mean, that's even in the Bible. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Actually, there's one, um, one very, very famous story of one Jewish rabbi who had two very scholarly sons that he loved very much. And once when he was out teaching, his sons became very sick and died. And when he returned to his house, his wife greeted him at the door, and she said, my dear husband, uh, some time ago, a very wealthy gentleman who was going on a journey left a couple jewels here for safekeeping. And today he's come and asked for them back. What do you think I should tell him? He said, well, of course, you should give them back. And then she showed her husband the dead sons. So this is the, the view of the devotee. That whatever, when Krishna gives, when Krishna takes away, that all of it is for the good. All of it is for my good, and all of it is for that reciprocation of love. Now, what's very interesting is, especially for the aspiring devotee, for the one who's not yet perfect, these difficulties that the Lord is giving us is considered his first mercy. His first mercy. And there's a very nice statement here 
from Srila Prabhupada that I thought I would read about the second mercy. Lord Krishna said, My devotee is not deterred by any adverse condition of life. He always remains firm and steady. So this is a measure of love. If I only love when things are nice, then how do I love? Then I'm not loving you. I'm loving the fact that you're doing nice things for me. In the marriage vow, they always say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. But often people only hang around when it's better and richer. He always remains firm and steady. Therefore, I give myself to him and I favor him so that he can achieve the highest success in life. So this is the, there's several aspects of the second mercy given to the devotees who's taken everything given by the Lord as prasadam, the good and bad things. And the first aspect of that, of the second mercy, is that you actually get Krishna. The mercy bestowed upon the tried devotee, someone who's shown that they love in the good times and the bad times. Sometimes people stop loving in the good times. I've got what I want and I'm going. They use, they use God as a supermarket. Please give me something. You go to a shop and you say, I'd like to get some oatmeal. And you get the oatmeal and you leave. You went there just to buy oatmeal. And if they don't have any oatmeal, you also leave. You only stay long enough to get your oatmeal. So people are like that with God. Please give me this. And if you give it to me, okay, goodbye. I'll see you next time I want something. And if you don't give it to me, well, I guess you don't have it, goodbye. I, I remember once taking a walk with a friend of mine in London. And we, were, we needed some directions. So this one woman who was also walking said, well, I'll walk with you and show you where to go. And my friend started speaking to this other woman about Krishna consciousness. She said, why don't you try chanting Hare Krishna and praying to the Lord? The other one said, well, I don't have any problems. Why should I pray? <laughs> the mercy bestowed upon the tried devotee by the Supreme Personality is described as Brahman, which indicates that the greatness of that mercy can be compared only to the all-pervasive greatness Brahman means unlimitedly great and unlimitedly expanding. So once one has shown that I'm going to love in the good times and I'm going to love in the bad times, that Krishna, if you pour opulence on me, the people are respecting me, I have plenty of money, I have good health, everyone in my family is getting along, I have a job that I love, the weather's good, that I'm still going to love you. And when my house burns down and my family members are fighting and, you know, my leg gets broken, my business fails, I'm criticized all over the internet, I still love you. Then you get the second mercy that is unlimited as the Lord himself. That mercy is also described as parma, for it has no comparison within this material world. Parma means other. So it's, you can't, there's, no, there's nothing like it. You can't compare it to wealth or health or friends or family or reputation. It's also called shukshma, very fine, very, very subtle. One of the commentators say that it's so subtle, it can't be understood by the materialist. It's, it's an expansive, unlimited ecstasy. The Lord's mercy upon the tried devotee is not only great and unlimitedly expansive, but it is of the finest quality of transcendental love between the devotee and the Lord. So once we've shown that we're a lover in all circumstances, then our whole life becomes full with love. Such mercy is further described as chinmatram, completely spiritual. The use of the word matram indicates absolute spirituality with no tinge of material qualities. That mercy is also called sat, eternal. So the, the material gifts are all temporary. Even if you get something in this world, actually the nicer it is, the worse it is when you lose it. 
was talking to one devotee whose wife recently passed away, and he was saying the relationship we had was perfect. It was what I was always looking for in a relationship. And doesn't that hurt so much more when it ends? But the second mercy of the Lord is not anything temporary like that. It's sat eternal. And antakam, unlimited. Since the devotee of the Lord is awarded such unlimited spiritual benefit, why should he go anywhere else? A devotee of Krishna does not worship Lord Shiva or Brahma or any other subordinate demigod. So this is the second mercy of the Lord upon somebody who's taken everything that Krishna gives them as prasadam, as mercy, as kindness. And Prabhupada says in the purport to 1515 in Bhagavad Gita that Krishna is all good and all merciful. So, of course, it's very difficult if you're immature, like the child. It's very difficult for the child to really appreciate and really acknowledge and be grateful for the ways in which the parent deal with them that they don't like. Put your toys down and do your homework. Turn off the computer and go do your homework. No, you can't eat your blueberry muffin before dinner. It's a rare child who's able to appreciate it. But if we practice appreciating, then we will come to spiritual maturity. Say, if God is all good and God is all merciful and he's personally dealing with my life, then what's happening to me must have some spiritual benefit for me. Even if I can't understand it right now. And that also takes a little humility to say, maybe God has more intelligence than I do. And maybe I'm not at the level of maturity where I can understand all of his plans at this particular point in time. But I'm going to have faith that in the long run I'll see that everything was for the good. And if one goes like that, then the suffering component is minimized. There's a Buddhist saying that pain is, in is inevitable, but suffering is a choice. And that's actually confirmed by Krishna in the sixth chapter of Bhagavad Gita. There may be external difficulties, not maybe, will be, definitely, for everybody. But whether or not we perceive them as suffering has a lot to do with our own choices. So we have some minutes for questions. Yes, sir. So, thank you very much. Um, so, a while back you were saying how as soon as we say, Krishna, I am yours, come what may, I am yours, what if, and then from that point on, whatever happens to us really isn't karma, it's Krishna's sort of personal handling. Yes. What if, uh, maybe there's many of us in this room who haven't come to that point, but we're taking part in spiritual life at some level. So at what point does Krishna, is everything is Krishna karma instead of ordinary karma? That's the point where he says. What point? Where one says, my Lord, from this day on, I am yours. But what about everybody in the room? What, what, to what extent is Krishna intervening in their lives? Well, if one hasn't yet made that commitment, then one's operating um, under the laws of material nature, which are also, of course, ultimately engineered by Krishna and ultimately for our good, but in a more... Um, <clears throat> but it's not in as directable way. It's just like the laws of the government were ultimately made by people. And they were made by people for the good of all of the citizens, ideally speaking. Obviously, that's not exactly totally true, but that's the idea. They're certainly made by persons, and the persons who made those rules made them for the good of the citizens. But they're not being administered on a personal level. They're being administered more on a, uh, this is the rule. You know, if you're dealing just with the clerks or you're dealing just with the judges, they have a limited ability as to how they can apply the law. I mean, I read an interesting article recently about this man who was convicted of second-degree murder, even though there was no physical evidence linking him to the crime. And he had five or six alibis, including a police officer, that he was in another location. And still the jury found him guilty. And the judge 
the judge felt that he wasn't guilty, and the judge put in the uh, decision that I would have acquitted this man, but I was forced to sentence him because the jury found him guilty. So he gave him the smallest possible sentence he could. He gave him a life sentence that with possibility of parole after 15 years. But when he came before the parole board, he said, I didn't do it. And they said, well, we're only allowed to parole you if you show remorse for the crime. That's our rules. Our rules for the parole board, it says right here in our rule book, you have to admit guilt and show remorse for the crime or we don't let you out. So he kept coming in front of the parole board and saying he was innocent, and they kept not letting him out. Finally, he said, okay, okay, I did it. I'm really sorry. Just get me out of here. They still didn't let him out. And the next time he said, you know, I'm guilty, I'm really sorry. And they, and, and they said, is there anything else you want to say? He said, well, I really didn't do it. And they said, well, now we're really not going to let you out. And finally, the judge looked at his looked back and, and said, I wonder what ever happened to that guy. He looked at the case, found that the poor guy had been in jail for like 19 years, got together a group of lawyers, and they all made a petition, and they got him out. But now that he went before the parole board those two times and said, yeah, I did it, now there's no question of his uh, conviction being overturned. So that's what happens sometimes. When you're just under the law, you know, it, there's, there's no, it's a, this is the rules. This is the rules we have to follow. You, you know, you did this, of course, this was a case of mistake. The universe are not mistakes. But my point is there's a, there's a, a law. The judge said, okay, the jury says this, that's what I have to do. So there's laws in the universe. You do this, you do this, that's what has to be done. It still sounds a little presto to me because Christus says that in Christmas law, all of them as they surrender are rewarded accordingly. What you're saying sounds a little black and white. No, it's not black. It, it's like, um, so I ran the school for a couple decades. And it was an individually, it was an individualized curriculum, what they now call in education circles differentiated. And our policy was that each child could progress in each subject at their own pace and in their own way. So if, if a kid came and they said, okay, I already know Algebra 1, and we gave them the exam, then they could not have to take Algebra 1 and they could get credit for it. Which you can't do that in most schools. I mean, I, I remember being in third grade and reading Charlotte's Web and I still had to read, you know, C spot run, run, spot run. And my, my mother went to the principal and said, my daughter's bored in the class. And they said, well, then she can do extra work. <laughs> More spot. More spot. So in the school that I ran, it wasn't like that. If you already could see spot run, then you could go on and read Charlotte's Web. You know, it was, it was done individually. Now, at the same time, a lot of the kids in my school were doing the same work they would have done in any school. So just because it was administered individually doesn't mean that not one single kid was doing, that who would normally be in third grade was doing third grade work. In fact, the majority of kids, the majority of time, were doing what they would have done in a regular school as far as their academics goes. But I was administering it individually. And administering individually went, worked in both directions. So if I saw that a child was having a lot of difficulty in something, then I might have them go more slowly. And then the one little boy that we took through kindergarten math three times. So for the, there may be some apparent similarity for the aspiring spiritualists between what they would have had to undergo as their karma and what Krishna's engineering. But it's now being administered on a personal level. So it sounds like what you're saying is that that proportional uh, statement Krishna makes really only comes to play once somebody really determines to surrender to Krishna. Is that fair? No, I'd say that it applies even at the highest level because it applies also in the realm of rasa. But I'm talking about in the beginning. But Krishna's still, but Krishna's still reciprocating with this. But the point is that it's karma. When you're under the law of karma. It's a, it's a rule-bound system where the administrators in the universe have to follow the rules. The administrators in the universe only have so much leeway to break the rules. So where, where Depending on their level, just like you go to a business, 
And if, if you've gotten shoddy merchandise, you can go to the frontline clerk, the cashier, and say, I want a refund. And they, it's not our store policy to give a refund. And you're, they, that clerk there, has, they just have to follow the rules. Then you have to go to the supervisor. The supervisor has a little bit more leeway to play with the rules. And it's, it's only when you go all the way at the top that they have full leeway to break the rules. It, depending on their level of authority. So when you're under the law of karma, you're under the universal laws with the universal controllers. And they're saying, you did X, Y, Z behavior, so you're going to get this reaction. And you can say, but I've already reformed my consciousness. And I'll say, well, it's too bad. The minimum sentence for this is such and such, and that's just what you have to do. So as soon as a person starts appealing to Krishna, that's where... The then Krishna's taking personal interest in their case. And then Krishna can adjust as he sees fit. Whereas the universal controllers under him, they have a, the higher up they are, the more they can adjust. But they can't adjust unlimitedly. Krishna can adjust unlimitedly. So as soon as you surrender to Krishna, Krishna is personally adjusting. You've gone from being dealt with by, a, by the bureaucracy of the universe, so to speak, to, to an, an individual personal loving relationship. Now, in that individual, personal, loving relationship, Krishna is still responding to you and reciprocating to you according to your surrender. He's custom-tailoring everything to your, your particular mentality. And, how, and, what's, and in fact, I'd say it's more true. It's more true, because when you're under the law of karma, you're just in the system. And when you're working directly with Krishna, he's directly responsive. Prabhupada says Krishna is very responsive. He's, he's very responsive in dealing with you and saying, what, what do you as a particular individual really need? What would be the perfect custom-designed thing? It's, it's like having your own private coach. You, know? you can just go take a group tennis class or you can get a private coach, someone who's just working with you. So Krishna's working with you as a private tutor or a private coach. And he's... He's custom engineering it. You're coming and saying, okay, I want spiritual life. Say, okay, this is what we're going to do for you. This is our plan we're going to work out for you. And, and these are the things that you should do and you shouldn't do. Is there, I'm, I'm just a little worried because we just have a few minutes. Is there somebody else? Because Suresh, I know you can go on for I can do that too. I mean, no. Yes, I think what would help them understand is a more clear definition of what you're meaning by surrender or, you know, now I'm ready to dedicate myself to the spiritual path. And those, what, uh, I, I, I think he's asking, at what point is that understood by Krishna? But I think what, I what, what symptomizes that understanding? Well, what Lord Brahmachandra says is if someone comes to me and, and asks for courage, And, and the Lord is a singer, Dave said, as soon as come, someone says, and says, from this day on, I am yours. That's how the Lord himself is describing that moment. And Yamaraj says, if anyone one time bows down in front of the Lord, with sincerity, not officially, not like you're just going, you know, you happen to be in a church because your friend's getting married, and part of the ceremony is you bow down and you're, but if someone, one time, and Yamaraj is the main person who administers karma. So that's, that's how he describes that point of surrender. He said, once a person has done that one time, they're no longer under my authority. It seems that the process of surrender isn't always like Arjuna, Karpanya Joshua, Padatasavava, when he just totally surrenders to Krishna and becomes his disciple. It's, it's often a very gradual process rather than just we come one day to the realization, okay, my Lord, I'm yours. It's usually more, much more gradual. I think See, it is very gradual. As soon as that starts, then Krishna then begins to Yes, as soon as it starts. As soon but as it, but it, starts. It, it doesn't have to be the full-on, full-blown no, as as surrender. As soon as it starts. Take one small step to Krishna, he starts to take steps. Yeah, as soon as you take that first step and say, this is, I want to take up the spiritual yeah, Krishna sees the smallest thing and he yes. immediately begins to reciprocate. But I like Irma's point that Krishna says, bring, you know, whatever you desire to have, bring it to me. We come to him for, for all these motives. But her point, I really like, is that the more we give, the more those motives become purified, the more we get the custom 
the custom uh, help. Yeah, of course. Yeah, because we're coming close because we're endearing ourselves more. Chris is trusting us more. That's very, yeah. But we're definitely under that, the custom direction of the Lord as soon as we take that first step. As soon as we take the first step. Is that okay? So I'm sure that all of us will get some opportunity to practice this. I'm sure we'll get some opportunity to practice seeing both the materially good things and the materially bad things as loving exchanges with Krishna. And there's a very nice quote from the father of Srila Prabhupada's guru, Bhaktivinoda Thakur. And he says that this whole material world, this is in Dharma, the whole material world is also the pastimes of the Lord. And whenever there's pastimes and there are adventures, there's going to be some conflict and difficulty. Again, otherwise it's no fun. Right? Why will Superman show up if Lois Lane's not in danger? I mean, there's no no excitement. He said, but it's our choice whether or not we, the way he put it was, whether or not we choose to exult in having our part in the Lord's play. Whether we choose to see that what's happening to us, how we're part of the Lord's adventure, how we're part of the Lord's story, and to exult in that, or whether we choose to see the world as a place of suffering. So Prabhupada says, the materialist sees that the world is a very aggressive place, but the, to the devotee, everything is happily situated. So thank you very much. And now we'll have our kirtan, and then we'll have our food prasad. All right, Krishna.